Author Ely Wiesel records a true and profoundly moving episode which occurred while he, at age 15, was imprisoned in Germany. In one scene, it expresses the horror of the concentration camps, perhaps more potently than all the camp statistics ever published. A bunch of arms had been discovered at the camp, belonging to a Dutchman who was promptly shipped to Auschwitz. But the Dutchman had a young boy who served him, a child with a refined and beautiful face, unheard of in the camps. He had the face of a sad angel. The little servant, like his Dutch master, was cruelly tortured, but would not reveal any information. So the SS sentenced him to death, along with two other prisoners who had been discovered with arms. This is what Wiesel says. One day, when we came back from work, we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place, three black crows, roll call, SS all around us, machine guns trained, the traditional ceremony. Three victims in chains, and one of them the little servant, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more disturbed than usual. To hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. This time... The prisoners refused to act as executioners. Three SS people replaced them. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard, I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. That night... The soup tasted of corpses. The topic for our program tonight is contained within that story, as just read by Philip Yancey, our guest tonight. Where is God when I hurt? For the answer to that question, and perhaps some comments of yours, join us for Open Line. <laughs> Live via satellite from our Moody Broadcasting Network studios in Chicago. I'm Stan Ferris. Our phone, phone number tonight, 312-329-4460. And we'll be with you for about 55 minutes, so we invite you to stay tuned. You just heard what I feel is a very moving story. As read by Philip Yancey, it is a portion in his new book called Open Windows, published by Crossway Books. And it more vividly portrays our subject tonight, I think, than anything else we could have used at the beginning of the program, whether music, drama, or just the spoken word. And it, it points to the very critical issue of where is God when we see pain. Just to give you a bit of background on Philip, he is editorial director of Campus Life. He has written a number of books that uh, have been heralded by the readers, and you are probably familiar with them. Where is God when it hurts? Put out by Zondervan. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And as I just mentioned, this uh, book, his newest, uh, Open Windows. Philip, thanks for being with us tonight. I suppose it's not even fair to, to say that we could come up with an answer for that type of question. Where is God uh, 
when we see pain and suffering. You know, that story was written by a Jewish person, not a Christian, Eli Wiesel. He's not a religious Jew. He, he was. He was training to be to a rabbi, and then he lost his faith, mainly through that experience at the concentration camp. But that story really points to a glimpse of the answer, if there is an answer to the problem of pain. The people in the background were yelling, where is God now, when something this terrible is happening? And then someone called out, where is he? He's, he's on the gallows with that boy. And I think that's one fact about pain that a lot of us overlook. We try to figure out what does God think of a world full of pain like this, people with leukemia, wars, everything that's going on. Some people think he's pleased. Some people think he causes it. Other people think he's very upset. He wants to heal all illnesses. A tremendous advantage we have is that God became a man, became the person Jesus. And as I look at Jesus' reaction to pain, quite frankly, it's very similar to a lot of our reactions. He recoiled from it. He didn't like it. He had sympathy for people who suffered around him. He was afraid of pain. In a certain way, he prayed in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he felt the same alienation that many many of us have felt in pain when he finally cried out, cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? I find that encouraging, that God himself reacted to pain in a way not unlike I react to pain, like people around me react to pain. It, it shows me some of God's compassion. Is it okay for us to look at God and, and question him when we're going through these experiences? Is it, is it sacrilegious to really ask some questions of God, even though we are created beings and he's the creator? I don't think that's sacrilegious at all. When I look at a book like the Psalms, I've been reading through the Psalms, and it's a funny collection because in one Psalm, David or the author will be enthusiastic and excited and praising God, the very next psalm, jutted up against it, he will be in the pit of despair. Where are you, God? I cry out to you. You never listen to me. You don't answer my prayers. I can't get in touch with you. And David, as I read the Bible, is one of God's favorite people. And I think one of the things God liked about David was that he was honest with him. He didn't try to hide his emotions. He didn't put on a pious face when he said his prayers. He brought who he was that day to God. And when I look at people like Moses, like Job, like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, and when I see what they go through when they face pain, they go through the same stages of anger in some cases, of confusion, of alienation that I go through. And I just see no condemnation, whatever, in the Bible for those kinds of stages. That's, that's what it means to be human. My guest is Philip Yancey tonight, author, and I suppose I could say journalist. Would that be fair? Right. And you have taken on some subject matter that is absolutely awesome in at least two of your books, Where is God When It Hurts and Open Windows. You have dealt with topics that have plagued the soul and mind of man for centuries and centuries and centuries. And you haven't been around that long. And it's uh, a very noble and I think a noble effort, and you've done well in, in the way you've written. And I say that to you who are listening, if you want to ask uh, Philip about handling pain tonight, if you've got some difficult circumstances, maybe your situation is not as dramatic as the one we began uh, the program with. Uh, that doesn't matter. Your pain is still your pain. And uh, call us tonight at our phone number, 312-329-4460. We always mention that if you are a bit afraid of a long-distance phone call, don't worry about that. Call us up, and then we'll take your question and call you right back so you're not hanging on the phone uh, waiting to ask a question of Philip and running up a big phone bill. Why? Why would you take on such a subject that has baffled and frustrated and perplexed the minds of men for years and years? Well, you called it noble. Maybe other people would call it foolish. Um I guess the reason I took it on is because it's baffled and perplexed me. The question, how can a God who loves us and who is powerful allow a world like this to exist with so much pain in it? And especially in this latest book, Open Windows, I went to a refugee camp in Somalia. There are 
over a million refugees in in the country of Somalia. We don't read about them in the papers much in the United States, but they've been uprooted from their home, thousands and thousands starved to death before the relief organizations got in there. And if you stand in the middle of one of those camps in the terrible conditions, awful heat and disease rampant, and the relief workers from America and Europe trying desperately to, to stave off disaster, and you look around you and you see 60,000, 80,000 people all blending together into the horizon, and you're a Christian, and you believe that, that God was involved in the creation of each one of those people, God loves those people, it makes you wonder, and it makes you think. And as I have been in situations like that, as I have read accounts of the concentration camp survivors, and even as I've been around my neighbors and people who have come down with troubling diseases, a very good friend who had a child born with a severe birth defect, we live in a world that's just full of pain. And it bothers me. It's something that I had to devote a good portion of my life to explore and try to figure out as much for my own faith as for anyone else's. And because I'm a writer, those themes kept showing up in my writing. I'm going to make a statement, then you react to it or correct me. All right, Philip. I'm not convinced that there is an answer for pain, at least in our contemporary situation. You can look back and say, yes, Christ died and suffered and identified with pain. And you can look to the future and you can say, yes, there is hope someday. But what about right now? It seems like the greatest of men have said you simply must endure and will look up to you if you somehow survive that uh, process of pain without rejecting God. But it seems like you're asked to believe, keep, keep the faith, even though the present circumstances would mitigate against uh, holding on to faith. Now, maybe you've, you've got an answer for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right that there is no answer to, quote, the problem of pain. Uh, if I break it down a little bit into more manageable parts, I think there are several several questions that arise to anyone who is suffering. One of the first questions that I hear again and again from people suffering is, why is God doing this to me? What's he trying to teach me? Who's doing it? And Christians give a really confused answer to that. Some people say, well, God is disciplining you. Other people say, no, God's not doing it at all. It's Satan. Other people say, well, God has especially selected you to suffer for him. And that's the question of cause. Why is it happening? My own conclusion, after looking at all the biblical evidence, is that there is no neat, packaged answer to the question of cause. I see a lot of different causes outlined in Scripture, and when people get too sure, like Job, or Job's friends, or the disciples, when they look at people in pain and say, oh, I know why, it's because this person sinned, again and again the Bible contradicts and says, no, that's not it at all. But interestingly, even in the book of Job, God doesn't really answer the question of cause. He sidesteps that. So I do not think that there is a clean-cut, uh, neat, packaged answer to the question of cause. And we're barking up the wrong tree if we're looking in that direction. I think so. You're spending a lot of energy, a lot of emotional energy, trying to figure something out, and you probably won't reach a conclusion. Or if you do, I hope you call in in the next 40 minutes. I'd like to hear it. Or perhaps it may depend on your personality type. That's, that's right. <laughs> There is another side to the problem of pain, though, that I think the Bible does give some specific answers, and that's a question of response. Now that it's happened to me, what do I do with it? And the answer that the Bible gives is that as bad as your problem is, God can take that problem and actually make something good out of it. He doesn't overcome pain by removing it so that we as Christians never get the flu, never get malaria, etc., he doesn't remove pain. Rather, he conquers it by using it in our lives to build character in us that may not come through any other way. I am not comfortable with saying that God sends us the disease to teach us that lesson. I, I just don't see that in the Bible overall. However, I do think that once it happens, depending on our response, if we turn to God and trust him, he can take that pain, which is negative, it's a bad thing, and he can turn it into something good in our lives. So on part of it, I say there is no answer. I haven't found one. And on another part, I found some very encouraging answers and have seen them lived out in the lives of people. 
Well, if you want to maybe share your experiences tonight and talk with uh, Philip Yancey about pain and maybe some insights that he's gotten after exploring this subject, call us at 312-329-4460. Hello, Debbie from Ohio. Debbie? Yes, hello. You're there from Ohio. Yes, I'm here. What's your question or comment? Well, I had a question, but based on uh, Mr. Yancey's comments just a moment ago, I don't know... um, if he's going to be able to give me an answer or not. I wondered if in his book, his first book, if he dealt with emotional pain. Uh, It sounds like he's been doing a lot of dealing with with physical pain, but uh, has he dealt with the topic of emotional pain, emotional trauma in his his books? Has he gotten a perspective on that? Debbie, I only deal with that indirectly, and mainly it's because it is so hard to talk about. When you talk about the physical pain system, it's very complex. But when you're talking about people's psyches, their personalities, it's very hard to make general observations. I do feel that the principles I have come up with in in my research and my talking with people and study of the Bible have parallels that apply in the emotional world. My The main thesis of the book, Where is God When It Hurts?, is that pain is a signal that tells us something wrong is, is wrong. Biologically, that's what it is, and morally, that's what it is also. And I think the same principle applies in the emotional realm. If, for instance, a person is having trouble in his marriage or her marriage, or a person is feeling the sensation of guilt, let's say, guilt is like pain. It hurts, it nags us, it bothers us, We want to get rid of it. We wish we had an aspirin or something that would get rid of guilt. But actually, that guilt can be a healthy thing. It's forcing us to face into a problem. If, If there were not such a thing as guilt, we would likely not go to God for repentance. Guilt plays the same role as pain emotionally. It forces us to admit that something is wrong and find a solution for it. And I think the same thing is true like in a marriage relationship, which is a very close, intimate relationship. When a person has marital problems, uh, really the emotional trauma that is felt, the pain that is felt, can be a signal. Deal with these problems. There's an incompatibility that you need to work through. You're not communicating well. It's, It's a way to force you to deal with a problem. The emotional pain itself is not the problem. Uh, What's the problem is, it's really the symptom. There's a cause underlying it. And I am not qualified, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not qualified to talk about all those different causes. But I do feel that there are some parallels in the signals of emotional pain. Those are very parallel to what happens with physical pain. Debbie, I'd like to know if uh, you have something particular on your mind, you know, as far as a painful experience or something that you're going through. Yes, I do. I brought this up because I have been going through something very painful for five months, uh, trying to recover from a broken engagement. And that is what I was talking about. Um, I was going to ask, why would God allow someone to continue in a painful state, not only not removing it, but compounding it uh, by having you see the person all the time in your church? He has not given me the option to leave the church that I'm attending and consequently, I see this person all the time, and that has caused new pain on top of the old pain. Mm-hmm. And my question uh, to someone a week ago was, why, you know, it's been five months. Why will not the Lord remove this pain from me some way? Uh, I know that pain is good, and I know that it produces things, and it has produced things. It has strengthened me and stretched me and all that. But it's like, it's been five months. I mean, isn't this a little long? And that was my, that was why I brought that up. Uh, your statements of a few moments ago were that God doesn't necessarily remove the pain, but he leaves it there to produce his character in us. And he has produced more of his character in me as a result of this, and, and in the gentleman also. But what I really wanted to bring up was, like I said, uh, why, what purpose would there be in continuing this painful situation in not giving me the option to leave this painful situation, but having both of us continue in it uh, for months and months. Debbie, you're saying God is not giving you the option of leaving the situation? Well, through people in the church, 
he very clearly exhorted me that I did not have the option to leave the situation. I heard it again and again and again through family, through uh, people in the church, uh, that I should not run, that I should stay. Um, and as I stayed, like I said, I did see some benefit in it. But it kind of gets tiring to have to face. It's like when you have a physical pain for a long time. You kind of just wish it would go away because you're sure. tired of fighting it. Right. Well, and our natural inclination would be to avoid a painful situation. Mm -hmm. And I, that's why I wanted to bring this, this up. I just wondered if you had any insights on um, emotional pain in relation to a broken relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the history that I've seen is that the emotional pain that occurs in a broken relationship that was not a good relationship to begin with is far, far less than the emotional pain that would occur if, for example, you had gone ahead and gotten married and found out five years from now some of the problems that, that have recently come to the front. So, although in the midst of the pain, I'm sure it's, it's agonizing and, and affects your whole life, compared to what it might have been five years from now, um, I think the pain is probably worth going through right now. Mm -hmm. But I, without knowing a lot of the details and really not being able to get into them on the phone here, Debbie, I, it bothers, it troubles me a little bit, I guess, that the, the people in your church are, are taking the prerogative of being so sure that you should stay there. Um, it may well be that even a, a three or four month uh, vacation from that church where you go to, to another group of believers might be a healthy thing both for you and for the gentleman. And uh, I certainly wouldn't want to contradict them without knowing more of the facts. But I would, uh, if I were you, I would want to make very sure that you didn't have any other option. Mm -hmm. Debbie, thanks for calling tonight. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. This is Open Line, and we have with us author and journalist Philip Yancey. And if you'd like to call us tonight, 312-329-4460. Especially if maybe you have been in that crucible of suffering and maybe have learned a few things, we'd like to hear about that. Or if you want to ask some questions about this double-edged sword called pain. You know, it seems there are answers that you can give to people that explain your situation if it is painful. But they may not work when you see someone else in pain. You know, uh, they, they may die somewhere in the communications process. They may not be applicable. Are there two aspects to pain? What you say about yourself and what you say to someone else who is suffering? Yes, I think you're right, Stan. And I think um, some Christians err in having easy answers, a verse of Scripture here or there, um, that will, we will just dump on people who are in pain and say, oh, well, haven't, haven't you considered you should praise God in the middle of it or something like that? And one of the things I like about the Bible is that it shows a diversity of responses to pain, and it really doesn't condemn them. As we mentioned, it shows the full spectrum of anger and grief and despair. You take a book like Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and it goes on chapter after chapter with a person who, who just sees the bottom of the barrel. And so I, I don't think, I'm very hesitant to give any kind of prepackaged answer uh, even in a situation like we just talked with, that that may apply to one person but not another person. It's Pain is a very private thing, and there aren't any simple packages you can drop on people like that. The difficult question is, how does God view us as we bear up under a painful situation? Does he only pat us on the back if we come out with a shining testimony on the other end and maybe write a book about our experiences? What if we stumble and fall a little bit as a result of our pain, what does God think of us then? Well, I, what comforts me, I guess, is to go back to the book of Job. Uh, we talk about the patience of Job. Actually, I've seldom read a more impatient character. <laughs> Job went through the whole spectrum. He was using sarcasm with God. He was using satire and irony. He was a very angry fellow. And... I don't see any condemnation. When God steps in, he doesn't condemn Job. He condemns the well-meaning, pious friends around him who had all sorts of advice on how to handle pain. And that's a lesson for me. It's a lesson for me as an author writing on pain, for sure. Um, the 
the relationship is between a person who is suffering and God himself. And I do not have the right from the Bible as I read it to be a judge and to enter in and say, these emotions don't add up. God doesn't accept these. I just don't see that in the Bible at all. I think that's part of the human condition. It's part of a normal response to suffering, and I don't see it condemned. Hmm. Give us a call tonight on Open Line as we continue. Patrick? Yeah, I my thoughts uh, uh, more or less run along a parallel to, uh, uh, to what, I, what I would perceive uh, a soldier going through, uh, if I might. I, ho- I certainly hope it doesn't sound too simplistic. Uh, once we decide to uh, uh, bring Christ into our lives, I, I'm one of the believers who says that, uh, that you indeed are going to be going into spiritual combat. Uh, I think that we as Christians are, uh, most especially if we are uh, in any kind of a service or a ministry, are, are going to experience perhaps more uh, pain, uh, suffering, uh, usually in the emotional and, and psychological and spiritual areas than anybody else. Uh, it, it occurs to me that uh, if you're going to belong, you're going to hurt. Uh, uh, it occurs to me that uh, if... Uh, once, once Satan has lost our souls, his only hope is to incapacitate us, lest we be effective in the service of the body of Christ. Uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting my full point across, but uh, I, I can see no way that anybody is going to serve Christ uh, without, uh, uh, at least in my own experience, uh, some, some pretty extraordinary pain. Now, I, I've dealt with this for about nine years, and and I've almost driven myself mad trying to seek the same answers that you're talking about right now. Uh, and the only thing that I found is is that uh, that parallel, that uh, that analogy, is that uh, I'm serving Christ and I'm going to experience pain because of it. Uh, I would like some kind of a response to that to see if that makes any kind of sense to anybody else. I, that makes a lot of sense to me, Patrick. When I look at at uh, Jesus. You see a recruiting poster, say, for the United States Marine Corps, and it says the Marines need a few good men, and it shows them uh, touring Europe or flying in the sky and smiling brightly in in a polished uniform, and everything looks so great. If Jesus were were doing a recruiting poster, uh, as I read the Gospels, it's as if he showed a poster of a Vietnam vet coming home in a wheelchair all bandaged up with his girlfriend having left him and the townspeople rejecting him. Basically, he said, when you join me, you take up a cross and you follow me. And when I look at, at Jesus' last advice to his disciples, the, the night before he was crucified and, and right before he left and ascended, he said, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. And he outlined not the fact that they were going to all drive Cadillacs and be healthy and never die, He outlined a time of persecution where you're going to be reviled, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be killed. And if you study church history, that's exactly what happened. Most of the the original disciples were martyrs. I think that it is true that when a person chooses to follow Christ, it means getting involved in a lot of the mess of the world. It means getting involved with oppressed people, poor people, hurting people. And when that happens, you're going to have pain. You're going to have emotional pain. In addition, of course, there there is going to be strong attacks from Satan. So I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that that answer explains all pain. I don't think it necessarily explains uh, why I come down with the Hong Kong flu, for example. But certainly you read a book like First Peter, which was written to, to suffering Christians, and the author says... Uh, You know, don't keep feeling sorry for yourselves. This is what you signed up for. Uh, Jesus went through it. Follow in his steps. And that's the advice he gives. I'm so so glad to get that reinforcement because I've often wondered if I were fooling myself. And I've I've gone the other extreme and and wondering, my goodness, what am I doing wrong here? Uh, Patrick, we're going to have to wrap this up. I appreciate you calling. Okay, thanks a lot for the help. Thanks much. Right. Open line is back. Our guest, Philip Yancey, and our call comes from British Columbia, Canada. 
Well, it will in a moment anyway. I'm Stan Ferris. This is Open Line, and we have about another 25 minutes to spend with you. And Judy, are you on the line with us? Yes, I am. Are you calling from British Columbia? Yes. That's a ways away. Thanks for calling. What's your question or comment? Well, I'd like to talk to Mr. Yancey and thank him very much for his book, as, um, Where Was God When It Hurts? Where was or where is God when where it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? I'm sorry. Um, I'm kind of shaky at this, but uh, I have MS, and it's it's been a steady uh, downhill uh, trend for me. And all I can do is thank the Lord for what he has done, because I had a lot of plans, and... Um, before before I got sick, and they weren't very good plans. So, uh, but what, I, what I'd like to ask is, um, what can a person in a wheelchair who is sick about two weeks out of the month, how can you be a witness to anyone? Well, Judy, thank you for, uh, for what you said about the book. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is that you can minister to people in ways that that I cannot. I've been going to a group recently at a hospital, and the, the people all have life-threatening illnesses. They either have cancer, some have multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, or what they call Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, I have a lot less of a platform to comment in that group. It's kind of a therapy group, and they go around and, and share their own struggles. And I really feel kind of out of it in that group. I feel like I haven't earned my stripes. I really don't have a, a right, in a sense, to comment to them. And one thing I found is that, is that you can help people, other people, for example, in wheelchairs in ways that I never could because you've been through what they've been through. Uh, take an example of a, a person like Johnny Erickson who wasn't concerned about suffering people, wasn't concerned about handicapped people until it happened to her. And suddenly she had a platform that she had never dreamed of, and she can speak to them in ways that, that I never could. And I, I think the same thing is true of you. You have a message for people who are suffering. You also have a message for those of us who are healthy, a message to be grateful, to cherish the ability to walk, to use our, our arms. Yes, I know, but, uh, well, the MS group up here in Penticton, um, they don't want to listen to anybody who's got anything to say, and um, you just can't get through to them. I am fairly new in this town, and uh, they just don't want to hear anything I've got to say. Mm. So that's where I'd like to be unchristian-like and go out and with a baseball bat sometimes and just <laughs> swap them one. Right, right. Well, sometimes, you know, it, it takes time. People who are hurting are exactly that. They're hurting. Yeah. And uh, they're defensive. Uh, they're angry. And I, I think you would be surprised that uh, the, kind, the effect that a steady, consistent, compassionate love from someone like you can have, mm -hmm. you're not, you're not going to see the results in one meeting or in two weeks or something like that. It, it'll take a lot of time. But I really do believe that in your position, that you can have far more of a ministry to people like that than I could. Yeah, well, <clears throat> my pastor told me, I gave him the same question, and he said, the smile on my face and just being at church every week uh, has helped more people. Hmm. And I hear him saying that, I hear you saying that, and yet I can't get it, seem to get it through my head that I'm, able to help people. Well, sounds like you're just going to have to take their word for it if they keep saying that, Judy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, but oh well, I'll keep smiling. Great, thanks for the call, Okay, Judy. thank you very much. Thank you, Judy. Bye-bye. This is Open Line, and uh, our next call comes from Florida. Good evening. Hello? Yes. Can you hear me well? Quite Perfectly. Well. They said we had uh, a bad connection. I'm a... Uh, a therapist um, in private practice, and I'd rather not give my name, but uh, because of working in the community. But I would like um, you, Philip, to know the use of your book. 
with the Christian clients that I've had uh, that it's been very, very helpful. And I've always kept at least two copies on hand to deal with the issue of pain because uh, the anger, the alienation, and so on usually goes on when they're in therapy. But um, what I wanted to discuss was uh, my own pilgrimage on that whole issue. And um, what I would ask you is, do you find that the decision on justice, God's system of justice, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture, the amount of, uh, say, divine intervention, um, comes into play when you make a decision uh, about the problem of pain? How's that for a loaded question? That, that's pretty loaded, and I want to make sure I get it correct. Um, do you mean, does what I believe determine how much God will intervene in my life? Is that what you're asking? No. No, okay. Um, it seems that um, I had to change theological positions when I began to struggle with this. Okay. For, instance, for instance, the Calvinistic position uh, to more of an Armenian position. In fact, uh, by the time I got through with it, uh, there I was reading along the deistic line. And uh, I've come back full circle on this particular issue. But I've seen other clients, I've seen clients struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about is, for instance, uh, in the Psalms, the promises that are there that uh, very often Christians claim. A thousand shall fall at thy right side and so on, but uh, uh, it shall not come nigh unto thee. All the promises, when you realize that they may or may not apply to you, mm -hmm. come, uh, come into question. And then the whole issue of inerrancy and infallibility. Well, have we been applying these verses wrong? Maybe they're limited just to the people that they're written to. I see. Okay. That is a big question, and, and let me see if I can at least start a comment on it. I frankly see a, a difference, a progression, I would say, in the way God works in human history. If When I go around and speak or ask questions of a group of Christians and say, what are your biggest problems, they'll say these kinds of things. They'll say, why isn't God more consistent? Why do some people live evil lives and yet seem to prosper, and other people live, live good lives and yet come down with leukemia? We get those kinds of calls even on this program. Yes. Why isn't God consistent? Why doesn't he reward good and punish bad? Then they'll say, why isn't God more obvious you know i pray to him and i don't feel like he's there i don't have an answer i don't know whether he's there or not and then they'll say why doesn't god guide me more clearly i'm trying to decide should i marry this person should i take this job should i go to this school and then people tell me to look in the bible and i don't see anything about schools in the bible i i don't know where to turn you know it's funny as i read the old testament especially in in god's relationship with israel i don't think they really ask those questions in the same way when a little Jewish boy said, uh, when they're wandering around in the desert, where is God? His parents would take him outside and say, well, you see that cloud, that pillar of fire? Uh, that's a sign of God's presence. I would imagine it would be pretty hard to be an atheist in a situation like that, where you can just go out your door and see God's presence. And that cloud actually was what guided them. Where do we go today? Do we go to this town or that town? Just follow the cloud. And again and again in the Old Testament, you see in the history of Israel, if they were right and consistent and just, then God would reward them and the nation would prosper. And if they weren't, then God would punish them. Well, I, I really do think that God has changed his way of working in the world. I think that he is depending largely on people like you and me to establish his presence in the world. If you ask me, where is God in the world? I would point to a a figure that the Apostle Paul uses again and again, the body of Christ. God is in the world through us, through the people that he has called together. And I don't personally think that he is operating in quite as direct a way. There is no Shekinah glory cloud that tells me where to go each day, what to do each day. I'm in a little different situation. I think God is developing more freedom, and this may parallel a lot of what you have been thinking. God is is in a, in a way giving the human race a tremendous compliment. He's letting us represent him in the world. And as a result, he gives us an awful lot of freedom. He doesn't reach down so much and fix up every little thing that goes wrong. Rather, he can take those things that go wrong and, and use them to build our character. But I do see a progression in God's activity in the world. 
Uh, I a lot of people have the idea that God is kind of a, a mechanic in the sky with a, a series of wrenches. And whenever something goes wrong with my life, then I pray and he reaches down with a wrench and fixes it. And I, that's that has not been my experience at all. I think that uh, God rather uh, works at training me to be a better mechanic in my own life and in, in other people's around me. D- does that relate at all to what you, the progression you've been going through? Yes, it, you're talking about the amount of divine intervention yes. that might come in the span of one lifetime. Right. And, uh, of course, if you're, I would think that if you're at the Calvinistic end, you think that the, uh, the divine, not intervention, but the, or, the divinely ordained uh, events of life are 100%. And then if you're at the Arminian end, that it would be, um, you know, much less intervention. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I, at this point, I feel that there is divine intervention at times that we cannot predict. Absolutely. And uh, while God calls us to personal responsibility, and that he primarily works through the Holy Spirit within us. Yet I will not limit him that he does not work in external circumstances or even interfere with external circumstances. Right. And, and I guess uh, when I came back to the position to allowing that God does do miracles, we mm-hmm. just can't predict God, that, that that helped me. It really helped me with my faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with clients, uh, I found that, that I was pulling the props out from underneath them when I gave them the full view of responsibility apart from the intervention mm-hmm. of the whole, you know, of God mm-hmm. uh, in external circumstances. So, you know, I don't know. Um, well, you know, I think your your own occupation is, is a good example. Um, why doesn't God just miraculously reach down and heal the emotional problems of the people you deal with? Well, I think he enjoys working through you. You know, I think he enjoys... Um, establishing his presence through people who are committed to him. That's what his body is about. That's what his kingdom is about. I agree with you. You can't put God in a box and say God only works this way. Um, that never works. He surprises us, and I, I certainly agree with you that, that he does intervene. He does do miracles. I don't build my theology expecting them in every case. Right. But, um, you know, I think God... God is bigger than we are. He works through us, and then sometimes he works in spite of us at the same right. time. Ma'am, thank you. Would you be willing to comment on the on the book? I don't know if this is even ethical, but uh, a book that's very popular right now that takes uh, your thesis to probably the, the farthest extent is uh, a book in the evangelical circles called Decision-Making in the Will of God. You know, I... I have not read that book. I've, only, I've read a couple of chapters that have been um, excerpted in magazines. Those chapters I like. Basically, he's saying that God, as I understand it, God doesn't have a little blueprint mapped out that tells you what toothpaste to use and where to go today and who to talk to, but, uh, but rather you, there are a variety of occupations which could be God's will for you. There are a variety of people you could be married to who could be God's will. It's, is that accurate from what you've read of the book? Yes. Uh-huh. Is that is that the professor from uh, Multnomah College? Yes, it is a Multnomah book. I'd, I'd hesitate to say uh, a comment on the whole book, but from people I've talked to that I trust, I think he's on the right track. I, From what I hear, I like very much. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for calling us tonight. Thank you. Mm-hmm. One aspect of the question we didn't get to, and I'm going to put you on the spot, uh, we just got involved in the conversation, and that is this whole matter of promises. She brought that up at the beginning of the question. Are we free to uh, to flop open the word and say, well, God clearly promises here that I will not suffer, and so that's what I should expect? Well, I could, I could equally flop open the word and, and show promises that you're going to be persecuted, that you're going to have trials, that you're going to struggle, uh, which is what Jesus gave his disciples. He said, this is, this is what you should expect. Uh, some of those promises, uh, when, I, when I read them and I really analyze what they're saying, they don't say you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy all the time. They do say that God will prove adequate, that God will be your strength, and that God will see you through. There is no temptation taken you that, that he won't see you through. And uh, I don't know if I know what see you through means, because it, it may bring you to it may bring you to death itself, 
your particular trial. And we always consider that to be like the worst thing that could happen would be that God would let me die. Yeah. When in fact we're already programmed for that somewhere along the line anyway. That's right. Well, you know, that is a very good question because I say that that the experience of pain can be used, the evil of pain can be used for good. And people will say, well, I can see that. Uh, I can learn patience. I can learn perseverance or whatever. But what happens if death is the result of pain? Well, that's a good question. And I truly believe, I've got a whole chapter in the book, I believe that eternal life is is the answer to that, that God takes even the negative, scary, awful thing of death and turns it into good. It's exactly what he did in his own uh, life here on earth. He took the terrible fact of the crucifixion, the darkest day in human history, and turned it into a great victory through the resurrection. And I think that that crucifixion and the resurrection together, they're a paradigm of what can happen to us in our own little experiences of pain. And Paul uses that analogy again and again. He says we're crucified with Christ all the way through. Well, see, Philip, in between the lines, you are challenging the whole mindset of modern man because we are in business to control our circumstances and we are in business to uh, control other individuals and implements. And uh, what you are subtly saying is that, no, you're not going to control pain. Maybe in, in some technical way you can alleviate uh, having the discomfort of having a tooth filled. But there's still a lot of pain that we can't control. And you're not going to control death and you're not going to control pain, it is bigger than you are, so you are going to have to deal with it. That's absolutely right. And frankly, I think a lot of theology that has developed in the past 20 years is American theology that could only occur in the richest country in history after the invention of anesthetics and antibiotics. Um, before there was such a thing as ether, before there was such a thing as penicillin, Nobody could have come up with a theology that says you're going to live a life without pain, God will heal you from every disease that happens to you, and you'll live 70 years long. And in most countries in the world today, that kind of theology won't work, where you say, if I pray for a Cadillac, I'll get a Cadillac. America is so rich, if you pray for a Cadillac, you may end up with a Cadillac one way or another. But a person in India or China could pray for a Cadillac the rest of his life, a godly spiritual Christian, and never get a Cadillac. So I think a lot of what passes as theology that I hear on the radio and television particularly is a peculiar brand of American theology that could only develop in, in the latter part of the century. A person in India could get a used tea bag from someone here in this country. <laughs> That's right. That happens. Let's go back to the phones. Good evening. Hi. Yeah, Dick? Yes. You're calling from Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, what's your comment? Well, I uh, I was listening to the program on the way home from Bible study tonight on the, on the uh, car radio, and uh, it came to me that uh, sometimes when we hear uh, some of the teaching that's going around today, we lose sight of some very basic facts. And that is, is that back in the very beginning when God created this uh, beautiful earth, that it, he created it in a perfect way, and that there wasn't any sin, and that there wasn't any, any death, and there was no pain, and there was no illness. Where, was, where do you see that in the Bible, Dick? Um, with Adam and Eve on uh, do, before do, the fall. Can you show me a verse where it says there was no pain or illness? Well, there was no death. Okay. There was no death. Okay. Um, you, do you agree with that or disagree with it? There was a, um, the Bible teaches, I believe, in the uh, in the uh, in Genesis that. Uh, that there was um, not even animals were killed, that the first uh, sacrifice was made when God killed uh, an animal to give Adam and Eve a, a, a fur coat after, uh, after they had fallen and sinned. I'm not sure it's that clear. I would go along with you that uh, there, there is no clear illustration of death, at least uh, for sure spiritual death. Physical death, I think, is, is still an open question. Well, the only other thing I would say is, is that when God created it, he did look back and he did say that it was good and very good, and he was very satisfied, and he created it in a perfect way, and right. he intended it to be that way, and I can't imagine that he created it with sin and pain and sickness in it. I think those are the results of, uh, I guess I've always kind of taken that for granted. I can't mm -hmm. quote a scripture on it. Well, you know, I look at pain a little bit differently than, than maybe you do. I look at it, after studying it medically, I look at it as one of the most brilliant things designed in the human body. There are something like 100 million pain sensors that 
if we did not have pain cells, we would not have any pleasure in sex, for example. And, uh, you know, it's not so simple to brand pain as a negative and throw it out. It, the disease leprosy, for example, which I talk about a lot in the book, is simply a disease that destroys pain cells. And when people don't have pain cells, then they go around and destroy their own hands and their own faces. They'll lose their vision by, by washing their eyes with water that's too hot. They'll destroy their hands by picking up a pot from the stove. They'll destroy their feet by uh, stepping in shoes with a nail on them, and they don't have the pain sensors telling them. So um, I may be pushing a point a little bit, but um, I don't see pain as quite the negative that a lot of people do. Well, I, I've uh, I've read the book, and I, I I agree with you on those things too. And I guess I was kind of lumping that all together with suffering in general, and perhaps uh -huh. I I was getting off base because the point I was really trying to make was that uh, um, God's ultimate intention is to put this thing back together again, the way it was, the way He created, and and to show that He is the total uh, victor, and to sum up all things in His Son Jesus Christ. And um, I I was uh, thinking how nice it would be that if I were God. Uh, um, kind of the nice thing to do would be to uh, save people, bring them to Christ, and then kill them right away before they have a chance to do anything, uh, to get into trouble or to fall away or whatever. But that doesn't meet his purpose either. Mm -hmm. right. so, so the re real result is is that, that he has placed us down here uh, for the purpose of showing us that this is not uh, all there is, that we're to learn how to be more and more like him, and that this world uh, is not going to have an umbrella over us as Christians, that we're going to have to experience and live in the world, which is in a contaminated state right now. And um, until he brings and sums all things up in the Lord, uh, in Jesus Christ, uh, the sum of all things, that's the way it is. And he's only promised us that whatever we do have to go through from living in this contaminated world, that he will be there. He will be our strength and our might, and we will have power through him to overcome. He will never let us down on that. And But he never intended us to be without suffering. He never intended us uh, to hide away from, from all the pain and things that, uh, uh, that exist as a result of sin on this planet right now, and will until he brings it all to, together. Right. I I couldn't have said it better myself, Dick. I absolutely agree with what you said, and it, I can see why. You just are coming back from a Bible study. You're pretty wound up, and that's that's a very good capsule summary of the whole problem. Dick, thanks so much for calling us tonight. Thanks for hearing me. This is Open Line, and our guest has been Philip Yancey. If you want two books that you won't put down once you start reading them, one is Where is God When It Hurts? And you've probably already read that one by now, but a new one coming out. Philip Yancey, Open Windows. It's a book of essays that will be absolutely compelling, and uh, I highly recommend the book. Philip, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, sir. Tomorrow night, Donald Cole will be here to answer your questions about the Bible and Christian life. Then, Friday night, we're going to be dealing in junk, junk food. Not asking for any guilt trips. Maybe I'll eat a piece of junk food on national radio. Anyway, I'm Stan Ferris for Open Line. Thanks so much for listening tonight. <laughs>